0: So welcome, everyone. Uh, My name is Carl Temme. I serve as an elder here. Um, And uh, we're so glad you're all here. If you're joining us for the first time, we're especially glad to have you here. And uh, if you'd like to get connected with us, you can go to our website pbcc.org and there you'll find a say hello button just press on that and great things happen pastor will get in touch with you to see if you have any questions or uh, how we can help you get connected to us heavenly father some of us are here this morning with hearts full of praise but many of us are frayed even on the verge of falling apart It's been a long year for many, and we ask that you give endurance and encouragement and sustenance to those who are spent. We're humble enough to know that we need you to sustain our faith, and as much as we don't look forward to it, we recognize that just as with the story of Joseph that we've been following in Scripture with Brian, that the path to redemption goes through humiliation and imprisonment And Joseph's story points to you, Jesus, and the path that you followed, which was one of sacrificial giving of all that you had, which was everything, in order to save us. Grant us that kind of humility and sacrificial love that doesn't come easily to us. Free us from the self-righteousness that divides us. You are the God who gives endurance and encouragement, and we ask that you give us the same attitude of mind toward each other as Christ Jesus, so that one, with one mind and one voice we may glorify you. We pray for victims of violence in the Middle East, and we pray that the ceasefire holds. We pray even more that a new heaven and a new earth and an eternal peace that comes from your spirit, changing hearts, is brought to us. We pray for victims of the pandemic, not just those who uh, have fallen ill or lost their lives, but also those others who have suffered from being isolated, from losing employment, from mental health issues, and, and the struggles that we fall into when we're isolated. And we pray for um, healing not just here, but abroad, especially as we see these, these images from India and people suffering. We pray for that country. We pray for Brian as he comes, that his words are your words and that the message you want us to see in this text is revealed so that we may be sent, sent out, refreshed and, and renewed from having been refocused on you. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, let's turn now to our scripture reading that Brian has chosen for us from Psalm 30. I praise you, Lord, because you have saved me and kept my enemies from gloating over me. I cried to you for help, O Lord my God, and you healed me. You kept me from the grave. I was on my way to the depths below, but you restored my life. Sing praise to the Lord, all his faithful people. Remember what the Holy One has done, and give him thanks. His anger lasts only a moment, his goodness for a lifetime. Tears may flow in the night, but joy comes in the morning. You've changed my sadness into a joyful dance. You've taken away my sorrow and surrounded me with joy. So I will not be silent, I will sing praise to you. Lord, you are my God. I will give you thanks forever.
1: Well, as we come to the scriptures, let's bow in prayer and ask for the spirit to enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Our Father, first we just thank you that we can be together face to face, at least eye to eye, in this place. Thank you for bringing our friends Teen Challenge here and these stories of redemption. We thank you that the creation, when the life was dark, you brought light. Where there was chaos, then you made it filled with order. And where there was void, you brought your spirit to bring life. And thank you, Lord, for the gift of Jesus Christ, who does that in our lives. Through the cross and resurrection, he's poured forth his Holy Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And where there is darkness, you give light. And where there's chaos, you bring order. And where we are so void of life, you have abundant life, eternal life, without measure. For these gifts, we thank you, and we thank you for the scriptures, this living word. I pray now that the words of my lips would, through the Holy Spirit, would breathe life to everyone here and online. And if someone out there doesn't know you, they would see the glory of Christ and give their lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you can see on the slide, that's my favorite verse. Weeping may lodge for the night. Like a and b They're just there for the night. But it's a shout of joy in the morning. Well, this is the second Sunday of our indoor gathering, and it's the first sermon resuming our studies in the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Now, before diving into the message, uh, I would like to give some context and background of why we do what we do for those of you who may be new to the faith or guests at our church or for those who are exploring the claims of Christ, perhaps online. Last week, Sean... Stated that one of our key family values is devotion to God's word. And um, so you might be asking, why do we give our attention to these ancient stories written 3,000 years ago? I'm glad you asked. First of all, we believe that the original writings of both the Old and the New Testaments were inspired by God, by means of the Holy Spirit, who chose the words employed. And though there were many human authors of the scriptures, there's only one divine author, which gives an overarching unity and coherence to salvation history. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, is the story of beginnings, where we learn about the beginning of the created world, the beginning of mankind, and the beginning of sin and the horror and desolation it leaves in its wake. And then we get our first look at God's compassionate heart as he initiates his plan to rescue mankind from slavery, to sin, and to restore us in a new creation remade in his image. Immersing ourselves in these stories anchors us with deep roots, anchors us. But there's more, and this is what I love about the Bible. There's no book like this. The Bible is not merely an inspired record of salvation events. It is a history that's going somewhere with a divine purpose, such that earlier persons, places, and events become prototypes or patterns of later persons, places, and events. And theologians call this typology. That's probably one of their easier words that you can pronounce, typology. These events do not reoccur in repeated pattern like a refrain, but in a greater fulfillment that advances salvation history. So in this way, earlier acts uh, shaped Israel's Apprehension and how they comprehended their future history and the expectations they had of their glorious future was shaped by these events. Oh, there's going to be a new exodus. Oh, there's going to be a new king, a new temple, a new land. And so they knew where history was going. Now, when we examine the Joseph story, we are seeing God at work in transformative ways with the pattern humiliation, exaltation. And in the previous weeks, we have seen this pattern escalate with each repetition. Now, the poet's response to this pattern of humiliation, exaltation is found in Psalm 30, verse 5, where David writes, weeping may come and lodge for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. When our firstborn son, David, died nine days after his birth, that was the verse our beloved pastor, Ray Steadman, wired us from Australia to give Emily and I comfort. If you're wondering what a wire is, for you young people, it's in the old days, we didn't have the internet, you got this piece of paper in the mail that was from a wire service and was yellow, and these were, those were Ray's words. And this shall be our refrain this morning. With each repetition, the sorrow and the joy will be felt at a deeper level. So first, Joseph is the favored son of his father Jacob and the recipient of divine dreams. He incited the jealousy and the wrath of his brothers, who threw him into a pit and sold him to Ishmaelite traders. Humiliation number one. They, in turn, transported Joseph to Egypt, where he was again sold as a slave to Potiphar, Pharaoh's commanding officer of the royal bodyguard. But the Lord was with Joseph and granted him great success in the house of the Egyptian master, so he made him overseer over his entire house. Exaltation. Sadly, Joseph's joyous service was cut short when Potiphar's lustful wife, falsely accused him of assault, and Joseph was thrown into prison. Humiliation number two. But the Lord remained with Joseph, and he found favor in the eyes of the chief jailer, who put him in charge of all his prisoners and gave him free reign to manage his entire operation. Exaltation. After several years, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and the baker offended Pharaoh and they ended up in the same prison as Joseph, and they were placed under Joseph's care. Now one night, they both had a dream, each with its own meaning, but there was no one to interpret it for them. So in the morning, Joseph asked them why they were distraught, and then he accurately interpreted their dreams in contrasting fates. Life for the cupbearer and death for the baker. Hopeful that this would be an opportunity for his release, Joseph pleaded with the cupbearer to please advocate to the Pharaoh on his behalf when he is restored to his position. But the cupbearer forgot Joseph for two more years. Humiliation number three. But then, just at the right time, Joseph's God invaded Pharaoh's world in the night with two dreams that struck right at the heart of Egyptian civilization and her ability to feed the world. Shaken to the core, Pharaoh sought out all the magicians and all the wise men of Egypt to unlock the dream's message but no one could be found to break the code and avert the crisis. Finally, the cupbearer's memory was jarred and awakened. And finally, after 13 years, Joseph was brought out of prison and given the opportunity to exercise his spiritual gift a third time, this time in the presence of the king. With one swing of the bat, Joseph knocks it out of the park, correctly interpreting the two dreams as having one meaning. Egypt will experience a buffer crop for seven years, followed by seven years of famine, so severe there'll be no memory of the good years. Pain will purge the memory of all that was good. Pharaoh makes no response. He is stunned in silence. Now at this point, which is the turning point of the text, Joseph makes a bold move, demonstrating his faith and courage. He outlines for Pharaoh a threefold plan to preserve the nation through the crisis. Number one, he proposes to put the whole nation under strict wearing of masks. <laughs> oh, I read that wrong. Strict food rationing program. Number two, the program is to be administered in a quasi-military fashion dividing the land of Egypt into regions with overseers of each region. And then third, all the overseers are to report to one supreme vizier. So in offering this unsolicited advice, Joseph runs the risk of appearing presumptuous and incurring the wrath of Pharaoh. But the consequences of doing nothing would have been more severe. So now with Joseph's resume on the table, What will Pharaoh do? Verse 37. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall be order, order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Well, after Joseph outperformed Egypt's best and brightest, Pharaoh praises Joseph as one who stands far above anyone in his court. There is no one else in all of Egypt who could save Egypt but an immigrant a Hebrew. Hebrews were despised by Egyptians. Then to our amazement, the king acknowledges that it is God who is behind Joseph's gift of divine inspiration. There there's no way he could figure out that except by the Holy Spirit inspiring him to see that. It's the Holy Spirit that confirms God's word. And the Holy Spirit was working on Pharaoh's heart. I think that's neat. In appreciation for these gifts that Joseph has brought to bear the present crisis, Pharaoh places him second in command over his house and all of Egypt. Now, it's always an amazing thing in salvation history when the world pauses and stops to applaud one of God's servants as praiseworthy according to the highest standards. Most of the time, Christians are ridiculed as being hypocrites by the world, but not here. You know, when Jesus told the disciples that they were to be soft and light, I think this is what he had in mind. The ultimate test of an authentic disciple may not be what Christians think of us, but how the world praises us for the benefit we have brought to our workplace our larger community, and in some cases, the world. And it comes as no surprise that the Apostle Paul exhorts us in more than one place in the New Testament to keep our reputation impeccable with outsiders. Outsiders. And for leaders in the church, that's a non-negotiable requirement. Well, just as Pharaoh was unable able to speak following the interpretation of his dreams, now Joseph cannot speak. He's stunned. Well, having found his silver bullet to save the nation, Pharaoh is not about to give Joseph any room to negotiate or have second thoughts. The groom has found the bride. Everyone is smiling. So let the wedding begin. If Joseph was hoping Pharaoh would be decisive, he gets his wish verse 41 Pharaoh said to Joseph, "See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt." Then Pharaoh took a signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck, and he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out to him, "Bow the knee." Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh's public acts of insulation are framed with the words in charge of all the land of Egypt. Now if you look carefully at what Pharaoh does for Joseph, he does to Joseph what God did for Adam in the Garden of Eden. Just as Adam is placed as God's vice ruler over all that's there, and he's in charge of everything under his rule, and then later God provides a wife for him, that's exactly now what a pagan does for Joseph. Joseph holds the position of what would be the equivalent of our prime minister. It's the highest executive office below the king. And the transfer of, this, of his ring, he puts a signet ring on Joseph. That grants Joseph the authority to authorize royal edicts, to sign checks, while the garments of fine linen and gold chain were marks of royal distinction. Imagine the elation of this former Hebrew slave and prisoner of the air empire, now he's escorted all through the land in Egypt's version of Air Force Two. And everybody's saying, bow the knee. Weeping may come and spend the night, but it's a shout of joy comes in the morning. Verse 44, moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zephanath Paneah. And he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Aren't you glad you didn't have to read those names? Well, following the Pharaoh's royal proclamation, the insignia of office and public acclaim, Joseph is given a new name to symbolize his new identity and Pharaoh's greater authority. No longer is Joseph a foreign slave, but an authorized Egyptian citizen and ruler. Bruce Walkie suggests that his unique name probably means in retroverted Egyptian, God speaks and lives. God speaks and lives is his new name. To further legitimize Joseph's new position, his investiture concludes with a wedding to the daughter of the priest of On. The Jewish scholar Naam Sarna notes, the high priest of On held the exalted title of greatest of the seers. Joseph thus marries into the elite of Egyptian nobility. So Joseph is modeling here something very important for us. How do you be in the world, but not of it? We're not effective if we're not in the world, but we're not effective either if we're so in the world we're of it. So what's the balance that Joseph is showing us? Well, Bruce Walkey writes, While in Egypt, Joseph, like Daniel and his friends, come this summer, Werner will be teaching on Daniel, while in Egypt, Joseph, like Daniel and his friends, must accommodate his appearance, but not his principles, in order to participate. Both Joseph and Daniel are willing to wear pagan clothing, like me, bear pagan names, and in the case of Daniel and his friends, receive pagan schooling. However, Daniel and his friends refuse to violate Israel's explicit dietary laws And Joseph never violates the eternal law of God written on his heart. He takes an Egyptian wife, but he uses Hebrew names for his children and associates them with the praise of God and possibly with his destiny back in the land of his fathers. I actually think many Christians are not affected because they're not in the world. Sometimes they're working 50-hour work weeks, but they're really not there. They're just doing a job. But they're not priestly there, praying there, God's presence there. And then they avoid all the social gatherings. And then they're just isolated in a Christian ghetto. That's not helpful. You want to be in the world, thoroughly engaged with the world, loving on Christians, praying for them, breathing with them, but not being of them. I think this is a beautiful illustration of somebody getting to be head of state and then using that authority for the good of the world, not his own political agenda. It's beautiful. So now the beloved son of Jacob is now the beloved son of the empire. But Joseph is not caught up on all the accolades. He immediately tours the entire land to assess the national inventory. Fame is meaningless when the life of the nation is threatened. Verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of those, these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until it could be cease to be measured it, for it could not be measured. So the narrator concludes this scene by describing Joseph's robust faithfulness in carrying out his plan during the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. During the seven years of plenty, the land produced incredible bumper crops. Joseph gathered the fifth part, which was levied into the cities, and in each city, he stockpiled surplus from the surrounding fields, and then he protected it. In this manner, he collected so much grain, it says it was like the sand of the sea. So his calculator broke, and he kept, kept, gave up keeping track. Verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was a famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe all over or all over all the earth. So as Joseph predicted, nature's generosity was only temporary and strict discipline needed to be maintained to protect the surplus for the drought years that would follow. And follow they did with a vengeance. Reading these verses, you cannot help but feel the all-encompassing events and the eightfold repetition, all. The famine was severe that it impacted all Egypt and all the lands. On the other hand, So successful was Joseph's administration that he not only brought life to all of Egypt during the famine, but all the earth came to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. you know how amazing this is? Just think about this. Joseph's sacrificial and wise leadership single-handedly Single handedly brings life to all the world. One man. When the world languishes for bread, the king says, Go to Joseph, go to Joseph. It's great delegation. It's not my problem. Go to Joseph. For so there's nowhere else to go, and he has an abundance for all. Now, the Apostle Paul will say the same thing about Jesus. When the world is languishing, it's at the edge of death, go to Jesus, for there is eternal life and no one else, and he has an exhaustive supply through the Holy Spirit. As sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, how much more will the free gift of eternal life abound to the many through the one man, Jesus? (laughs) You guys need to say amen. We didn't bring you here today. Amen, amen. Is that good? Okay. Who is it? Okay, that's the answer. That's good. Okay, you can go back to sleep. No. (laughs) Well, the severity of the famine is going to set up the next scene where Jacob's family is forced to make a visit to Egypt for their own survival. But between these two descriptions of Joseph's administration during the years of plenty and famine, their narrator describes the grace of God to Joseph personally with the gift of not one but two sons. And in the naming of these two boys, Joseph gives voice to his profound appreciation to God as he grapples with the significance of his exaltation. Verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. Joseph, uh, and then the name of the second, he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So, As is typical of God in these narratives, he graces his servants who have been deeply wounded, not with one, but with two children. Their highly significant names speak of what God's exaltation of Joseph has done to his soul. The first name Manasseh is a pun on the verbal root to forget. So with his exaltation in Egypt, God makes Joseph forget his painful past associated with his father's household and his brother's murderous treatment. Joseph's old life is over. A new life has begun. Though the years of pain may grind upon us in ceaseless sorrow, God's salvation breaks upon us in a moment and his vindication can erase even the most painful accumulation of memories. You guys can all attest to that. Okay. Yeah. Joseph names the second Ephraim, a derivative of the verb to be fruitful. So here the patriarch celebrates blessing and future hope he is able to embrace even in the context of his terrible afflictions. As Brueggemann states, the first son affirms the discontinuity of Joseph from the old troubled history of Jacob. The second name sharply contrasts this family a blessing with the kingdom of curse. You know, whenever children are born out of a painful context of rejection, barrenness, or death, God often makes a deep theological connection with the parent at the time of birth. This was certainly true for Amley and I after the death of our first two children when God graced us not with one or two, but three daughters. And I remember with each birth, my theology changed. After my son died, I thought, I've given my firstborn to God. He'll never require a second. And when Jessica died, I couldn't keep that theology anymore. I had to learn that God can require anything of me. Being a parent is not a right. Two weeks later, we adopted Becky. And then I knew all of life's a gift, pure gift. She dried our tears. And then God gave us Jenny. (laughs) And I thought, God did for me what He did for Job. I got two on earth and two in heaven. He's doubled my family. And then God really surprised us and gave us Katie, and I didn't have words. When Emily was pregnant with her, 48 students at Stanford prayed for 24 hours that she would live. And Emily and I sang, weeping. May lodge for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Friday, we celebrated Katie's 39th birthday. (laughs) Well, this story did much to strengthen Israel's faith in God, who is so faithful to his promises and works all things according to his inscrutable will. Joseph's humiliation and exaltation became a consistent pattern, one that shaped Israel's future as a nation and many of her leaders. Before Moses was recognized as a leader among his people, he lived in the wilderness for 40 years. Before Israel enjoyed the fruits of Canaan and being lauded by Gentile rulers for her wisdom during Solomon's reign, she wandered in the desert for 40 years. Before David was embraced as a true king by all Israel, he endured over a decade of being hounded by a demonized king, hiding in caves and surviving solely by his prayers. But just as each one endured severe humiliation, God was faithful, faithful, and exalted each one at the proper time. Joseph's exaltation not only shaped Israel's spirituality, it became the paradigm for God's son, Jesus Christ. Paul writes of him in Philippians, To have this mind in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be used for his own advantage. He emptied himself completely by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Was he exalted? God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's our heritage we're adopted into. Humiliation, exaltation. And because of Christ's example, humility is enjoined upon every believer. Peter writes, the gateway to exaltation is humiliation. There is no other door. Therefore, all believers are encouraged to be like Joseph. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Humiliation is not optional, but exaltation is guaranteed. You know the best news? You don't have to do it. In fact, it's not a good idea to do it, it's a total gift where you're almost floating on air where the Lord takes you. You know, Joseph ruled not one, not two, three houses in Egypt. First Potiphar's house, and he ruled the whole jail, then the whole nation. The apostle Paul His first experience trying to be a Christian in his own strength was humiliating and they had to get him out of town in a basket because of all the trouble he was causing. And he was in the wilderness for 13 years studying the scriptures. And then he takes on not one missionary journey, not two, but three. Each one getting larger in sphere, each one with humiliation and suffering and beatings. But what happens at the end of his life? He's talking to the king. God put him before the king. And this is the way we function. You don't know where you're going. It isn't a five-year plan that you make up. God just takes you where he wants you to be his witness. And though the whole world can stand against us, and though we face betrayal and abandonment, God will never forget you. Ever. He's faithful. And so Peter adds that while you're waiting, cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. You don't have to wait alone, nor do we have to wait without heavenly comfort. That's the gospel. Amen. Today there's a famine of the word of God in this nation. But you have bread of eternal life in your homes and there's an abundant supply for everyone. And the Lord is going to exalt you to go places you never thought you would go, to speak to kings and waiters, doctors, nurses, janitors, teachers, engineers. And they're gonna ask you for the hope that is in you. You are a fragrance of Christ from life to life and death to death. And now receive this benediction from the prophet Habakkuk. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there is no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet Peninsula Bible Church and their friends, teen friends, who rejoice in the Lord. We will joyfully sing to our Savior, to the sovereign Lord is our strength. He makes our feet like the feet of a deer and makes us tread on the high places. Amen.